You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. For folks like me, born in the mid-70s, abortion has always been standing judicial precedent, always the stuff of political elections, always a reality of American life. In his new book, Beyond the Abortion Wars, Charles Camozzi offers a strong philosophical examination of abortion practices and the arguments marshaled in favor of abortion rights and against them. Then the book offers an outline for a new sort of abortion policy, neither Democrat nor Republican, one rooted in a strongly Catholic sense of where private option and public morality run into each other. I do want to pause at this moment and suggest to listeners with young children that this episode will get into the mechanics of abortion as well as the policy questions surrounding the same. So I strongly recommend that if you listen to this episode in the company of adults. I do plan to pause again when we get ready to discuss the realities that younger children might have a harder time engaging. But for now, welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Charles. It's my pleasure. Your book's introduction calls for something that the book's argument practices, namely complexity in public abortion debate. Take a moment to tell our listeners about some of the cultural forces and opinion-making agents that militate against complexity in public abortion policy. Well, I think there are probably two really strong ones. Um, The first is the media. So anybody that pays attention to our media, we love a good fight, right? We love an us versus them battle. Um, and I, I took a journal, journalism class, broadcast journalism class back in uh, college, and they, we learned a line that is still true today, which is, if it bleeds, it leads. And I think in the context of our sort of public debates about things, if it bleeds, it leads meaning, means that you set up a battle, a war, where somebody's going to bleed figuratively, right? And that's, mm-hmm. what, we, that's what people want to watch, that's what people want to see. Um, so an us versus them, life versus choice, easy to follow battle is what um, really mitigates against anything more complex than that. In a related story, I think uh, politicians also love a good us versus them. They get to raise money off the us versus them, the good versus evil. Um, they get to um, every election cycle, which we're about to hit another one here, they get to set up the bad guy and they're the good guy and let's go get the bad guys, right? Rather than, and complexity really doesn't work if you're trying to raise money or get a ground game going for Right. If you um, don't get us money, then those people win. Exactly. Exactly. And most nefarious of all, I think we're now seeing a um, sort of combination of the media and politics together in a, a sort of uh, amalgamation of horribleness <laughs> that <laughs> such that um, they sort of like build on each other and and, and so it's very difficult, actually, to get complex views out there at all, um, whether it's through the political channels or through the media ones. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this as a follow-up. I mean, one of the, one of the forces that I'm, I'm still trying to get a grasp on intellectually myself is social media. And it, it, it would have seemed back in the 1990s, the Wild West days of the Internet, that that might have been a place where you could get away from the sort of CNN factor where everything's a crossfire battle but yet I mean it seems like especially on Facebook but even on Twitter and other platforms everything is a one-dimensional partisan struggle uh, and I know your book is not about social media theory but I mean it's it seems to relate to our topic here uh, especially in these last few days with the Planned Parenthood videos being leaked 
Um, let me ask you this. I mean, do, does social media give you the same sense of despair that it gives me? <laughs> <laughs> um, I can see why someone would think that. And in some ways, social media can amplify the problems that I just highlighted. But it's a comp- social media is complex. And, and um, what it does allow for is an alternative um, voice to get in there that otherwise wouldn't be in there. So it does some bad, but it allows for some good. Let me just give you an example so we're going to have a vote, uh, I think, later this afternoon uh, on defunding Planned Parenthood. And the way that it's set up is in that lazy binary sort of like, hey, we're for babies and oh, we're for women. And that's a battle. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, Democrats for Life, which is an organization I'm on the board of, full disclosure, um, has really successfully through social media put out a, a message that says, no, no, you don't have to choose between protecting babies and supporting women. And in fact, if we reallocate these resources towards community health centers, um, it's actually better for women, right? They don't do mm-hmm. abortions, but they do so many other things like mammograms and pap smears and general primary care. So um, it, in our in our sort of like us versus them, good versus evil battle, that voice would be hard to come out at, at all anywhere. But at least on social media, right, on Twitter and Facebook and other places, um, it has at least somewhat of a chance to get out there. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Well, at least part of the occasion that makes a book like yours intelligible is a grand shift in voter demographics. Uh, take a moment to talk about the ways that voters defy that simplistic binary, uh, and at some point tell the listeners about the poll that you cite that reveals just how many people don't know that Roe v. Wade was about abortion. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I'll get to that. Uh, that, that that blew my mind. It really did. I... Well, well, let's let's get start with that first because it's just really important. So, what you often hear is, in light of the poll numbers I'm about to um, give you, uh, the response is, "Well, people overwhelmingly support Roe versus Wade. So, what are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. But it's just not clear what people actually mean when they say, "I support Roe versus Wade," for two reasons. One. Many, many people don't know even know what Roe versus Wade is. <laughs> so the uh, the Pew Forum did a study on the 40th anniversary of Roe, which said only 62% of Americans even know that Roe versus Wade is about abortion. And for those under 30, only 44% know that Roe versus Wade is about abortion. Hmm. So it's just not clear what that means. And for even those that know it's about abortion, it's not clear what they think overturning it would mean. A lot of people think it would mean, you know, like making all abortions illegal, including those that save the life of the mother or in cases of sexual violence or something. That's not at all what it mean. All it would mean would be that each individual state would be able to get to craft their own particular policy. So that's that's a canard. What 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 are some more interesting poll numbers? Well, how about this? 21 million uh, Democrats identify as pro-life. <laughs> You're not going to hear that uh, spread about very often. Um, how about women? You think we think of women being the uh, primary drivers of abortion rights? That's false. The the twenty week ban, which is about to be voted on in the Senate in September, ten percent more women support that ban than do men. Um, and by the way, more young people support that ban more mm. compared to older people. Latinos more than whites. The poor versus support those bans more than the rich do. Um, so these these narratives that we have, um, uh, in part because of the sort of like us versus them, lazy, you know, right versus left um, thing uh, playing out the way that it does, we miss the actual facts of the matter, which is 
Um, there's a there's a shift in voter demographics, uh, millennials, Latinos, uh, women. These are the pro-lifers of the future, um, at least if we want to pay attention to what the numbers say. <clears throat> well, and I mean, also fascinating there is that, again, the narrative that comes across, uh, at least in social media and broadcast media, is that support for abortion rights is widespread, but the practice of abortion is actually fairly rare. And again, the the studies that you cite in this book reveal a very, very different picture. Um, tell our listeners, first of all, about that disparity, and I mean, whatever theorizing you want to do about it, feel free as you go along. Yeah, so that was Bill and Hillary Clinton's um, line, now Hillary Clinton's line, and Bill Clinton's line back in the day, safe, legal, and rare. Mm -hmm. Abortion is simply not rare. Um, uh, Statistics are that one in five pregnancies in the country end in abortion. Um, I teach at Fordham University in the Bronx, uh, which is the borough just north of Manhattan in New York. Mm -hmm. um, In the Bronx, uh, the rate is unbelievably one in two. One in every two pregnancies ends in abortion in the Bronx. So um, let's just not kid ourselves. Abortion is not rare. It is not, we're not even, we're not even attempting to make it rare. Um, we don't support women who get in difficult positions with pregnancies. One of the things that uh, Democrats for Life is trying to do with a 20-week ban is add um, mandatory paid uh, pregnancy leave, maternity leave mm-hmm. uh, to the bill. We don't have, we're, I think it's us and Papua New Guinea are the only countries that aren't third world countries that don't have mandatory paid pregnancy leave. Um, it's unbelievable. So um, we, we, we say to women, you have a free choice um, to go have an abortion, uh, but that's the, that's the choice you have is to have an abortion. We don't actually make it structurally realistic uh, for women to choose not to have an abortion and choose to keep their children as these numbers, one in five and one in two, clearly demonstrate. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to some of the philosophical arguments you make because for me, this was the, the really fascinating part of the book. You examine one criterion that sometimes gets offered, namely that of total dependence. Uh, pretty soon after, you you call a, another criterion trait X, and you note that you know although people advance these uh, largely unexamined, that neither one holds up consistently as standards for uh, recognizing or denying legal status as a person. Talk a little bit about these two criteria and tell us what problems arise when dependence and capacity traits become legal criteria. Yeah, not good things. Um, I've always been puzzled by the total dependence criteria. You'll often hear some people say, well, we don't need to consider the fetus to be a person because she's totally dependent on her mother, mm-hmm. um, which I find, especially as a Christian, um, but I think also, I think most liberals, even if they're not Christians, that 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 principle is not a principle, right? If if anything, it's the opposite. The more dependent someone is, if you're a Christian and if you're a liberal, the more um, value they they have, the more attention we should give them, right? So it's just bizarre, actually, that someone would say, especially a liberal, right? Um, well, we don't need to care about uh, individual acts because they're totally dependent on someone else. Well, yeah, that's 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 the opposite of what we should be thinking about that way. Um, the other one you hear about, I call trait acts. I wasn't sure quite quite what to call it. It's this idea that instead of one's humanity or the kind of thing that something is, 
um, what really gives uh, an entity value is a particular trait that they exhibit. Um, and so um, I show in the book, and I'm not the first one to do this, but I show in the book that that just leads to incoherence with regard to other kinds of moral status questions. So if one were to say, um, oh, you're a person when you're self-aware or self-conscious, well, that obviously doesn't include the fetus, um, uh, but it doesn't include the, the uh, newborn infant either. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at least the newborn infant is no more uh, self-conscious than a chicken is. In fact, a chicken is probably more self-conscious um, more self-aware than a newborn infant, as mm-hmm. Peter Singer famously pointed out. Um, so in response to this, sometimes they pick a lower trait. Well, maybe it's not self-consciousness. Maybe it's you know, capacity to feel pain or the development of a brain. And, and so they'd be uncomfortable with late-term abortion, but um, but but early term abortion before the the baby can feel pain or develop a brain they're okay with it. The problem with that is if it's not humanity, if we just say it's not humanity that counts, but traits that count, then these traits account to non human creatures too. So any being that has the brain or feels pain then counts as a person. There's it would be arbitrary to limit it to human beings, right? So mm-hmm. we end up with um, really counterintuitive views again that. That chickens would count as persons, perhaps. Right, or cockroaches, for that matter. Cockroaches, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and... and I, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, that's it, that's it. Well, I mean, I, I, what's nice about it is that you don't merely critique those criteria, but you do offer a more, what I think of as philosophically durable process for talking about personhood. And the distinction that you lay down is between probabilistic and inherent potential... Talk to our listeners about those terms, because I think that's a really helpful framework for thinking about personhood. Well, what uh, what my students will often say, because I'll put a I'll put these two animals, you know, on the board, a human animal and a, and a chicken. Right. And mm-hmm. say, how about this infant and this chicken? What's the difference between them? And without any this is before we even get started with the arguments. And most of them will say, well, you know. The difference between them is that the the infant has potential that the chicken doesn't have, right? Mm-hmm. It, the the infant can grow and become the kinds of things that you and I are. Anybody listen to this is, um, but uh, you know, uh, one of the books I wrote was on Peter Singer. Peter Singer famously points out that why should we uh, care about potential? Potential doesn't matter. Um, you know, we we let sperm and ova die all the time without really caring much about. Um, what they are, the fact that they died, the, these cells died, but they're, they're the, they have potential to be a person as well. So I think in response, we have to distinguish between two different kinds of potential. And uh, the Greeks and Aristotle had, I think it was Aristotle, d- uh, came up with these two distinctions. One is more of like an active potential, and the other is a passive potential. Mm-hmm. Um, here's an example that might help um, illustrate it. So um, an oak tree is a potential table, um, and a sprouting acorn is a potential oak tree. Now, in English, we just use the same word to describe both, but what we're really talking about are two very different kinds of things. An oak tree, if it has the potential to be turned into a table, has to undergo what I call a nature-changing event. Mm-hmm. So it has to be cut down and turned into something else. It becomes a different kind of thing. That's passive potential. It can be acted upon and be turned into something else. Um, but if we talk about a sprouting acorn be, uh, potential to become an oak tree, what we're really talking about is active potential. No nature-changing event is necessary. It is. It remains the kind of thing that it is throughout the process of realizing 
um, what is already inside of itself, what it already is, in fact. And so what I think, you know, when we would distinguish to respond to Singer's argument, we say sperm and ova, they have a kind of passive potential. They can undergo a nature changing event, um, fertilization, right, and become a very different kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, a, 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 what I call a substance of irrational and relational nature. Um, same thing with a fetus, uh, um, except the potential is active, right? It is already is it, after fertilization. It already is the kind of thing that will be for its entire life. All it needs is the proper environment and energy, and it and it becomes the kind of thing it already is. At this point, I'm going to ask listeners to use discretion and make sure children are not listening. When you get into the range of procedures that count as abortion, you distinguish between direct and indirect abortion. What concrete differences are there between these acts, and what moral weight does that distinction carry? Well, it's a complicated argument, and I'll try to do my best at talking about it, but... um... Um, and it is also graphic, but uh, it's, I think it's important to talk about since I think it matters a lot morally. So direct abortion uh, is aiming at death. It's taking a sharp instrument and cutting a baby up into little pieces, aiming at their death, making sure that they die. Um, and we learned a lot about that kind of abortion from the recent Planned Parenthood videos, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, traditional Christian theology says that sort of aiming at the death of an innocent person is always wrong, period. But um, abortion, of course, the word abortion means to stop. It doesn't mean to kill. And there are other kinds of abortions. You can stop pregnancy by killing, in the the case I just described, or you can um, describe it or you can stop it uh, in a different way, in an indirect way, where the killing is indirect. Um, So, for example, let's say a woman has cancer of the uterus, is removing the uterus, a pregnant woman has cancer of the uterus, is removing the uterus with the child inside, aiming at the death of the child? Of course not. Um, But it is an abortion. It's a stopping of pregnancy. And you foresee, especially if it's at, say, you know, 17, 18 weeks, the child is uh, likely going to die, almost certainly going to die. If it's at 30 weeks, the child is almost certainly going to live. If it's at 22, 23 weeks, it's not clear what's going to happen to the child. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, what's going on in that kind of indirect abortion is not aiming at death. So it's not always wrong. So to follow up a little bit on that distinction, uh, what you're dealing with here is a distinction not between two acts of killing, something like a manslaughter versus a uh, premeditated murder, but rather something where it results in death, but death is not the intent of the act versus something that directly intends to kill and couldn't be explained in other terms. Is that a fair enough summary? Yeah, and with my students, I, I call it the piss test, right? Like the uh, would you be upset if the child died test so um, or did not die test. So um, you can do an indirect abortion, right, um, and hope that the child dies, or at least what looks like an indirect abortion, the child dies. You could do a C-section so that the child dies or induce labor early so the child dies. And that would be indistinguishable morally from a direct surgical abortion. But most of those situations, you'd be just overjoyed that the child lived, right? So if the right. if you do the hysterectomy at age 20, 22 weeks and the child lives, you're not upset. You're overjoyed. That. That's not aiming at death at all. So it's 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 a, even a mistake to even think about them as the same kind of act, even though they're both technically abortions. <clears throat> right, right. And this is going to play out uh, later on when we talk about the legal policy uh, that you're going to recommend. But 
Another distinction that we ought to get in, in place before we go there is between formal and material innocence. Uh, you talk about this at some length as well in your book. What does material innocence entail in moral philosophy, and how does this distinction between formal and material relate to the popular notion of children as, by definition, innocent? Yeah, so you often hear, right, um, oh, the children are innocent and, and you can never kill the innocent, and that creates a problem, especially, you know, I'm a Catholic moral theologian, we have a rule that says you can never kill the innocent, you can never aim at the death of the innocent, in no circumstance can you do that. And that forces the church into really difficult situations, especially when the life of the mother is in danger. And you often get, in fact, at the, um, at the recent Republican debate, um, Scott Walker was asked about this by Megyn Kelly. She, she said, are you really willing to let a woman die? Um, and according to the strict version of the teaching, traditional version of the teaching, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I, try to, I want to try to nuance it by making a distinction between different kinds of innocence. So formal innocence, what I call formal innocence, regards the innocence of the will. So am I, is my will, my choice, my intention innocent? And of course, children don't have a developed will, especially prenatal children. Um, so they have, they have to be formally innocent. But are they materially innocent? So we often talk in moral theology and philosophy about formal versus material innocence. If I am, uh, for instance, an insane person, my will is innocent. In fact, my will isn't really operative. But I might be materially a mortal threat. I might actually be an insane person attacking you or your family. In which case, the tradition generally says you can use deadly force against that individual, even though they're formally innocent, uh, but they're a material, what I call material aggressor. Mm. Or material, and actually I don't use the word aggressor, I change that, because that can be misconstrued. A material threat, a material mortal threat. And I think... Um, you can analogize that to a child um, who is threatening her mother's life. Um, I don't think that child is worth any less. I think that child is a person. I think that child is, is formally innocent. But I think in, in a tragic, unbelievably rare circumstance, because most of these cases can be resolved by indirect abortion, and those, mm -hmm. those, those are rare. Those cases are dramatically rare, but even more rare than those, to the point of being tiny uh, percentage of all cases, um, are cases where a direct abortion uh, to save the life of the mother is indicated. And there I think that distinction is helpful. <clears throat> right. And, and, you know, the reason this is going to play out, of course, is that when we're dealing with threat rather than intent as the main criterion, that, that becomes part of the argument for allowing certain exceptions in any kind of uh, uh, restrictions on abortion, right? Yeah, so I don't I don't want to take Scott Walker's apparent view, which is that direct abortion is never required. Some people say this that yeah. that direct abortion is never required to save the life of the mother. I want to make exceptions for indirect abortion uh, to save the life of the mother, but also direct abortion in those very rare circumstances. And it's really just a handful of cases um, mm -hmm. compared to the million abortions every year. <clears throat> All right. Well, now that we've got uh, some of the terminology in place uh, and we can refer to them without, without having to explain the terms, I do want to turn to public policy. And one, one refinement in public policy terminology that I find odd, I'll admit, uh, is that you say that to be pro-choice pro is not to be pro-abortion. Now, I'll, I'll admit that my own instincts tell me that the material issue is the abortion, not the act of choosing so that a person who wants judges to be able to choose to execute criminals is not pro-choice but pro-death penalty 
folks who want fewer restrictions on firearm ownership are pro-gun, not pro-choice. Am I just being too sloppy across the board here? Or is there something particular about abortion policy that makes this refinement important? No, I, I, I think you've pointed to something important, which is that um, some people object to the word pro-abortion at all, right? Mm -hmm. So, no, I'm not pro-abortion, I'm pro-choice. But uh, increasingly, there are defenders of the what could only be described as a pro-abortion view. Katha Pollitt's recent book, Pro, um, uh -huh. says, basically, let's stop using this language of pro-choice and let's just admit we think abortion is a social good in certain circumstances. So that's, that's definitely pro-abortion. But there are other reasons you could be uh, in favor of choice that aren't pro-abortion. So imagine someone who says, I, I hate abortion. I think... Um, uh, killing abortion is the killing of a person, but I also don't think the state um, can legitimately or even practically limit it. Uh, and so the only in, the only thing that um, making a, uh, abortion le uh, illegal would do would endanger women's lives, and it wouldn't save any children's lives. So reluctantly, I conclude that we have to we ought to have a pro-choice public policy. Now that person, I think they're wrong about, mm -hmm. as I argue in the book, about what what they're making a, a political and government, uh, what a government can do judgment. But but I don't think they're pro-abortion. I think they're genuinely pro-choice there. <clears throat> All right, so your refinement there, I mean, is largely for the sake of not, or for the sake of avoiding the assignment of motives to people based on a policy choice. Yeah, and, and I think uh, a good percentage of people would fall into that category. I, I, I know lots of people who would say, you know, Charlie, I'm with you on the moral aspect of this, but um, when we move from morality to public policy, I just think, um, for lots of reasons, I gave one another one is, I just don't think um, the government is in the business of uh, enforcing these kinds of really thick notions of the good. We have a mm -hmm. pluralistic culture that ought to respect different understandings of the good, and therefore, we ought to have choice when it comes to these contested questions. Mm -hmm. Again, I disagree with that. Um, I think when it comes to fundamental justice, government has to have a view. It can't be neutral. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but there again, I don't think the issue, I think it would be a mistake to call them pro-abortion. <clears throat> okay. Why don't you run with that for a little bit? Because you do make a claim in your public policy section that strikes me as worth expansion. Uh, you say that, you know, one critique of abortion rest restriction is that it imposes a certain metaphysics on the governed. Um, now, to me, I mean, that just seems like a tautology. Any kind <laughs> of law is going to be imposition of somebody's metaphysics on somebody else. What happened in American political theory that folks started objecting to imposed metaphysics? Boy, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I think part of it comes from this idea that's really a tall tale, right? It's not real that this is, in fact, the government is neutral, right? That mm. it's just this neutral public sphere and you can come in and you can offer your point of view and like we don't respect, we have freedom of religion and freedom from religion and, and we don't impose any point of view. But, um, you know, a moment's thought about <laughs> um, how this actually works in practice is that's just false. There is no view from nowhere. There is no metaphysical free uh, view of these kinds of questions, even the view itself, which sets up who counts as a person to have autonomy and morality, right? That that we right. would defend is itself presuming a metaphysical point of view. So um, there is no uh, there is no neutral space, and this is one of the things I try to get all my students to at least admit from before we even get started is 
let's not pretend that, that we can have this kind of faux neutrality. <clears throat> yeah, and I guess may, maybe it's because I teach uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's books, but I, it, it just strikes me as patently obvious that anytime one person makes a law that binds another person, you've got some kind of imposition going there. So, yeah, uh, I, think, <laughs> I think it may come from blindness at the end of the day, right, That's, that for people that don't even recognize what's being done as, in fact, a kind of judgment, right? Like, it's just mm-hmm. so obvious to them that we should be doing this, that it doesn't right. even strike them as um, as a judgment even being made. <clears throat> right. And I guess that could be a function of something else you talk about, namely that the law is a teacher of public morality. Now, that's something that's as old as Plato, at, at least, probably older than that. Um, you know, and in fact, our listeners over at ChristianHumanist.org know that a few years ago I wrote an essay to this effect about abortion policy, but I want to hear your take on it. Take your time telling us about the the law as a teacher of morality, uh, and be sure to bring in your thought experiment on legalizing infanticide. Yeah, so uh, maybe I'll start with a, a more modern example, not abortion example, and then and then bring it to infanticide, and then try to talk about it with, with regard to abortion. I think. We need to look no farther um, than uh, further than, than same-sex marriage as a classic example of how the law uh, teaches morality. So, right, like the first states to legalize same-sex marriage, right, or even you could even go back and further to the getting rid of don't ask, don't tell laws. Um, all sorts of things over the last 10 years or so have taught our culture um, in many deep and profound ways and unbelievably quick, quickly, actually. So, um Right about the time that these laws started being passed and then people started talking about the laws and the laws were covered. Um, uh, It's only in the last 10 years that this has even happened. So as recently as the 2004 elections, states were putting gay marriage on the ballot knowing that dramatic numbers were to come out to vote against uh, gay marriage um, and and then vote for their hope for candidate. Now that would seem absurd, right? That would just be absurd. It would go the opposite way. So... um, so in 10 years, the, the, the cumulative effect of the law as teacher um, has completely shifted our culture right, on, on that issue. Um, uh, in ancient Greece and Rome, right, um, infanticide was considered no different than abortion. In fact, we have a great, uh, actually pretty terrible, but greatly um, instructive papyrus from the, from the, I think it was the year one actually, of a, a Greek migrant worker working in Alexandria writing back to his pregnant wife essentially saying, hey, baby, I miss you, I love you, I'm coming back soon. If you have the baby, if it's a girl, throw it out. If it's a boy, keep it. That's how um, just um, totally ingrained in the culture this was. But um, as Christians came along, right, and um, they had different points of view, and they had to contend with a culture that didn't think of it as any different. Uh, But it would be absurd to say, right, that, um, oh, well, uh, you know, we're not going to um, ban, um, we ought to keep it uh, um, legal because the whole culture thinks it's legal. No, Christians argued as a, as a matter of fundamental justice, we ought to protect babies, right? And, mm-hmm. and and by the way, over time, this law will teach a culture, just as it uh, rightly or wrongly has taught our culture about gay marriage, over time it will teach the culture to think differently about babies. And guess what? When Constantine came in and uh, and and made this happen. It did teach the culture so that today in Western culture, infanticide has gone from uh, just another thing that you tell your baby, your uh, wife about when you're writing her a letter to 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 barbaric and unthinkable. Mm-hmm. 
And so um, something similar would happen, uh, no doubt, if um, if abortion were made illegal, broadly illegal. It would teach the culture. And in fact, some ways it already has. Um, views, especially among young people, have become much more skeptical of abortion. And I think that's not unrelated to the fact that many, many states every year are passing dozens and dozens and dozens of laws that in small ways, um, but significant ways, are restricting abortion. And and it, if, if the 20-week ban passes in September, I think that will be yet another example of how the law can be a teacher in this regard. Mm-hmm. Make a brief comment uh, about the law that was passed in Ireland as a test case for this point, because this is not something that is a theoretical, if you pass this law, then people's souls will change matter. It really is a matter that you can study as a matter of contrast between nations. Exactly. So under British rule, Ireland had very permissive abortion laws. Um, And then uh, uh, when they got independence and they uh, uh, decided to do this for themselves, they considered uh, prenatal children to be persons under the law, under their constitution. And um, the abortion rate, uh, even though... um, it's banned under the law. And this is why public policy can be tricky a thing. Um, the, the abortion rate in Ireland is not zero, uh, even though it's, it's almost totally banned. Uh, people still have illegal abortions in Ireland. They go elsewhere for abortion. But even with those, they have unbelievably dramatically fewer abortions compared to the UK, for instance, a similar, um, a similar type culture. And, um, and by the way, they have better maternal health outcomes in the UK, which is an interesting thing to point out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just obvious, right? And, and, this, and this is not significantly changing the views of people in Ireland are not significantly changing, even as they become more secular. So this isn't some like stranglehold of the Roman Catholic priesthood, in fact, which is after the sex abuse uh, crisis has virtually no sort of cultural cachet anymore in Ireland. Right. And they, they've got gay marriage now by vote, not by court decree. Absolutely. And there's no chance, if you held a referendum tomorrow in Ireland, there's no chance that um, something similar would happen with abortion as happened with gay marriage. So the, the laws there have really been a teacher in ways that, that people can study. <clears throat> well, I want to turn to another public policy question that, that also stands to be troubling. If abortion is, in fact, murder, some advocates of legal abortion contend then its commission should come with murder-level penalties both for the woman and for the physician. You argue that protecting the unborn and clemency for the mother are not incompatible. Tell our listeners why. Well, it goes, uh, I'm a pro-life feminist, and um, I think that our culture is patriarchal and coerces women in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways our patriarchal culture coerces women is to have abortions, right? So men, of course, can't get pregnant. They don't worry about uh, getting pregnant and having abortions. And our laws are set up to serve them. They're not set up to serve women. So imagine you're a single male, poor, um, you have sex, uh, somebody gets pregnant. It's not your problem, right? It's not your problem. Mm. For a woman, it's very different. You have to decide, are you going to bring this child to term? Um, Are you going to be able to pay your rent if you do that? Are you going to be able to stay in your job if you do that? Are you going to be able to care for the child after you do that? Um, For most poor women, that's really, really difficult uh, circumstance. So whatever they decide, it's coerced structurally by our patriarchal culture in ways that it's not coerced at all for men. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so even if I want to say, which I do, that having an abortion in such a circumstance 
uh, would be dramatically wrong. I, I, I would want to, um, like you said, use mercy as the primary operating principle for women in light of that. Uh, but I don't think of that when it comes to privileged uh, physicians who um, are doing this. Uh, they're well compensated. They have the freedom of choice to do, choose to do it or not. Um, and I think they ought to be charged with murder. And in fact, um, recent, relatively recently, Philadelphia um, a doctor and abortion provider Kermit Gosnell was in fact charged and convicted of murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is now uh, in jail for the rest of his life. So that is not sort of like a a deal breaker for our culture. You say, oh, that's ridiculous putting doctors in jail. No, when when doctors uh, flout the law uh, with regard to uh, killing uh, prenatal children, we already put them in jail. And so I think uh, we ought to do the same um, more broadly. <clears throat> okay. Well, I want you to expand on this this idea of patriarchy as the context in which abortion law happens. You, you write about a patriarchal bargain that women have made in the struggle for abortion rights in America. Expand on that phrase a little bit and tell us what a feminist politics might look like if Roe v. Wade and Casey v. Planned Parenthood abortion rights were not at their center. Well, I, I address that in the book first in the context of a pro-choice feminist actually responding to the, the Miley Cyrus phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at first glance, uh, this pro-choice feminist says she looks free and autonomous and having fun and making a lot of money. But in reality, what's going on here is she's decided to play by rules and in a system set up by men to benefit men and not women. Mm-hmm. And she does not see this as, even though she is in fact on a surface level free and autonomous, She's playing within a system that that is not that does not lead to her true and genuine freedom and autonomy, and uh, most people can understand what's going on with that kind of argument. I think something similar is true when it comes to abortion. And again, the system is set up by men to benefit men, and just talk a little bit about how it hurts women. Um, it's not surprising if you look at the history again. History is really important here uh, to see who was pushing for abortion rights. Um, was it? Was it women? Was it were it was it feminists? The first feminists, you know, the suffragists, Susan B. Anthony um, and company, um, were not pro-abortion rights. They were they they understood that this was something coerced by men and who were pushed by men. Mm-hmm. The second wave of feminism that I think made the patriarchal bargain. Um, but but in reality, there wasn't. These people weren't running the show. It was men that were running the show. I think one of the most powerful stories of this is Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Foundation was the money behind the lower court cases which were designed to provoke Roe versus Wade. So, um, and the seven justices on the Supreme Court were all men. And feminists, even those who are pro-choice feminists, have looked at the Roe versus Wade decision, and they can't find a feminist bone in its body, right? Like, they, this is, they say this is not a feminist decision. It was not a pro-woman decision. Um, so a number of pro-choice, even pro-choice feminists have looked at this and said, whatever this was, it, wasn't, it didn't have women at its center. And that's why I think it's important to say, like, for to, to look at this with new eyes as a feminist and say, is this really serving women or is this actually serving men at the end of the day and coercing a lot of women into situations they don't want to be in? Mm-hmm. Uh, hearing you talk about that, I'd like you to also tell our listeners a little bit about some of the journalistic work you did about changes within the Democratic National Convention on abortion policy. Because when I read that part of your book, I'll admit... Uh, I had to do a double take. I, I couldn't believe the prominence of the public figures whose positions are documented as changing. Yeah, and this happens on both 
sides of the of the of the coin, right? Of the political. Mm-hmm. Um, so people as you know well placed as you know Joe Biden and Al Gore and Bill Clinton and Jesse Jackson, Ted Kennedy, and their early part of their careers in the '60s and '70s, um, they were explicitly pro-life slash really conflicted. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time uh, it, it's it's time for them in the 80s and 90s to start running for national office. Um, they flip flopped, right? And they now joined a, 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 the sort of litmus test for being a Democratic um, national candidate. Um, something similar. Not I'm not picking on Democrats here. Something similar happened with Republicans. So the supposed great uh, pro-life hero Ronald Reagan as governor of California signed into law California's uh, law uh, permitting abortion. He signed it. Um, of course, he also flip-flopped and had a, had a change of mind when he came, uh, when he when he ran for the presidency. But tellingly, he picked George Herbert Walker Bush as his running mate, and he was pro-choice, explicitly pro-choice. Of course, he also had to evolve in his position over time. Um, and we've seen this more recently with Mitt Romney. He changed his mind. Donald Trump, um, who I guess apparently is a serious candidate. Um, uh, let, let's, was, let's not say that. <laughs> I, I, I wish it were not true. I wish it were not true. Um, he, 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 he flip-flopped. Uh, Chris Christie is maybe a more serious candidate, also uh, flip-flopped. So um, uh, this is not a... Um, this is not a coherent political system. In fact, if it, I, I argue in the book, it would be far more coherent if the party of small government and choice and freedom and government staying out of their lives was the one on the side of the pro-choice view and the, and the, and the party on the side of protecting the vulnerable and using energetic government to do that was mm-hmm. on the side of, of pro-life. So I think um, it's way more complicated than that, obviously, but, I, but there was a there was a historically contingent shift that went on there that didn't make a whole lot of sense. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, it, it has to be, I don't even know what to call it, frustrating, maddening, at the very least uh, tricky for Roman Catholics who traditionally have been on the side of labor unions and worker protections, and now all of a sudden the, you know, the party that's been traditionally pro-union is now now has a litmus test about abortion that goes completely away from traditional Catholic teaching. I mean, what, what, what has happened among American Catholics in that respect? It's, it's in some ways it's, it's what I focused on in my work as a public theologian, right? Is Mm -hmm. trying to heal the rift that this has caused in right versus left polarization, because you're right. This, well, first of all, the Catholic moral theological tradition doesn't make this distinction. So it's foreign to our way of being in the world. But mm-hmm. if you want to participate in politics, you, you, at least in an effective way, you got to sort of choose, right? And so you got Nancy Pelosi type Catholics, and you got, um, you know, you got Paul Ryan type Catholics, and uh, uh, and and those are very different kinds of Catholics, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 how they participate in the public sphere. Um, and it's not just uh, labor unions; increasingly, it's ecological concerns. So the Pope just came out with Laudato Si, a very important mm-hmm. eco encyclical. Um, Catholics are not going to get a lot of mileage out of the Republican Party trying to enact what the Pope uh, called for in that encyclical. So, um, yeah. so it's 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 actually something that's that's dr- driven a lot of Catholics to say, at least in my world, to say maybe we ought not to identify with the party and instead try to work um, in public if we work in public at all outside of our churches 
in a very different kind of way. <clears throat> right, right. I, I, and I'm not Catholic, but that's certainly where I've landed. I, <laughs> I, I want to be, you know, anti-abortion and pro-labor union, so yeah. uh, there's not really a party that likes me very much. <laughs> Well, what's, what's, what's interesting, I say this very quickly. I think there's uh-huh. hope for, I think there's hope for people like us because fifty one percent of millennials don't identify as either Democrats or Republicans, and the general uh, electorate is at record levels in identifying as neither Democrats or Republicans. So I think there's a moment here um, to try to take advantage of this in a way that that didn't exist before. So I'm hopeful we can move in that direction. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Well, I want to give you a chance to talk about your your own policy proposals. Uh, the book Beyond the Abortion Wars culminates with the outline for a major legislative project protecting both the both unborn children and their mothers. So take some time now to tell our listeners about the Mother and Prenatal Child Protection Act and its vision for women's liberty in terms both of American legal traditions and in terms of Catholic moral thinking. So... Um, it's a big proposal, as you said. It's, it's tough to unpack in just a few, uh, you know, minute or two here. But um, basically, the proposal, and it's one that's not going to get passed tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. um, it's something that would have to be argued for over a series of years, maybe decades. But it is something I think that captures both the sort of right and left version of Catholic moral thinking, and also um, places itself in this um, not liberal, not conservative, not Republican, not Democrat space as well. So it refuses to choose between protecting women and their prenatal children at first. So it, at first of all, it affirms um, that prenatal children, just like neonatal children, have equal protection of the law. That the fact that they happen to be in a particular location in space, they, they happen to be particularly dependent on someone else, doesn't impact um, their moral status or legal status. Um, and it basically bans direct surgical abortion, except to save the life of the mother. And it allows uh, indirect abortion um, in the case of uh, sexual violence, basically up through week eight. It's a little more complicated than that, but basically it allows the abortion pill RU46, which works up to week eight. Um, other, all other kinds of abortions are banned and would be um, uh, considered uh, um, felony murder uh, if a physician were to perform them. Um, at the same, uh, I think that's just what justice demands for prenatal children. Um, what it also does, though, is give women dramatic support and protection. So uh, equal pay for equal work, um, affordable child care, mandatory uh, paid family leave, which incidentally, I think it's us and Papua New Guinea are the only two developed countries in the world that don't have something like that. Yes. Um, uh, and it's actually paid leave for both men and women, because if you give it to men, too, it actually helps women pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, and legal protections and support for women at work. Um uh, protection against uh, discrimination based on family status, uh, giving women places to pump breast milk, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, uh, and I go through in the book and show how, while if you just look at our right versus left polarization, this makes very little sense. If you actually look at political sense, if you actually look at what American people, the American people think of all this, it actually makes very good sense. Most Americans want abortion to be restricted uh, past week 12. And, and I think you can make a case that in uh, a few years, it's going to be week eight. Mm-hmm. Um, but m- many Americans of, of all stripes, if you ask them independently of sort of like the campaigns we're about to have over president, will say, but I also think women should be supported. And if that means the government saying you have to give women mandatory 20 weeks paid uh, leave, that's what that means. Or if it means subsidizing childcare, that's what that means. 
So, um, and it's it's totally consistent and dramatically consistent, in my view, with Catholic moral theology as well. Um, but I but I think that um, done rightly and done with some care and sophistication, that's the kind of grand bargain that could be worked out over time. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. I, I mean, obviously your book is a new book. Uh, have, has there been any interest in Washington circles in pursuing something like this, or is it too early to ask that question? Well, I think most people look at the, that big proposal, and it's even bigger than I just had time to unpack and say, whoa, 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 that's really too big, too fast. I'm not sure how we get that um, done in the near term. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sympathetic. Um, I think probably when millennials are my age in their 40s, uh, 50s, we'd have a good shot at it, though. Okay. Um, but I do think, I, I know, in fact, that at a smaller level, this kind of approach, like let's ban abortion, but let's give women support, is in fact something that has political legs. So um, in September, the Senate is going to vote on the Pain Capable Act, which bans abortion beyond, with exceptions for rape and life of the mother, beyond um, week 20, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, right now it doesn't have a chance uh, to pass, especially if Obama vetoes, because there just aren't 67 senators that will um, override his veto. Mm-hmm. There are, however, 54, 55. And so one thing I'm, I'm working with Democrats for Life to try to add pay, paid um, mandatory paid maternity leave as an amendment to the bill, or at least a bill that would be considered alongside of it, mm-hmm. and, also, and also perinatal hospice. And I think um, it might be a you know ivory tower uh, academic naive of me to say this, but I just can't imagine moderate Democrats um, passing on paid maternity leave um, to to essentially enshrine late-term abortion, which most Americans, all, a tiny percentage of Americans want abortion past 20 weeks, a, mm-hmm. a minuscule. Right, so, right. Um, so it's the, actually the, pretty, the ones who want to make sure that we don't fall into the right-wing ways of France. <laughs> exactly. Most most uh, continental. Uh, European countries are at like 12, 13 weeks, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. So um, once once I learned that, I'll admit, I I mean the the recent dispute in Texas just struck me as as an exercise in mass ignorance. It's amazing. It's incredible. the The amount of power that um, uh, the pro choice and in some cases pro abortion lobby has in Washington, especially over the Democratic Party, is is extraordinary. Um, but it, you know, eventually those kind of numbers are going to get out there. Eventually people will see that only 27% of Americans want abortion to be legal past 12 weeks, much mm-hmm. less 20. Um, these kinds of uh, things are going to seem more reasonable, right? They'll be saying, well, you know, I might be a small government pro-life Republican, but I can understand why women need to be supported in this way. And I would mm-hmm. support this. I might hold my nose for the big government thing, but I'll support this. Or if I'm a pro-choice liberal, I might say, well, I've wanted for so long women to be supported uh, this way. Um, but I understand that abortion beyond 20 weeks is pretty extreme. Um, I'll guess I hold my nose and support this. Um, and that, But that's just our binary politics. The, re- the vast majority of Americans would say, Oh my God! I, this is exactly the kind of thing that I would support. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, if if something like that, I mean, came across my ballot as a referendum, or even if a candidate espoused that kind of position, I mean, my my vote would already be cast. So <laughs> here's hoping. Here's hoping. One point that that I want you to uh, talk about a little bit, just because it's such a common misconception. Uh, you make this point late in the book. 
that it is folly to link abortion law and same-sex marriage law. As you see things, do recent developments in same-sex marriage jurisprudence open things up or make things more difficult for those seeking something like the uh, the Mother and Prenatal Child Protection Act? I think I strongly believe it makes it um, open. It's more likely it opens things up, and here okay. here's here's why. So I think for so long in the 80s and 90s, and even for maybe most of the aughts, media sort of linked the two issues, right? Abortion and same-sex marriage were almost like one word. <laughs> mm-hmm. if there was a news story and people talked about conservatives' beliefs about abortion and you always knew that same-sex marriage was gonna be the next word. Right, right. Um, but, uh, but what's so interesting to me, and I think powerful in terms of rhetorical uh, point, is that even though abortion uh, or same-sex marriage is overwhelmingly popular for by young people, um, it's perfectly obvious to anybody that looks at, at, at any poll that abortion is not. <laughs> In fact, mm-hmm. um, among young people, it's this is the most skeptical generation of young people when it comes to abortion in the la- of any of the previous two generations. So, um, so it just opens up, I think, uh, 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 an opportunity to break apart that abortion, same-sex marriage sort of metaphysical connection, if you will, mm-hmm. and say, well, have, you know, have, have Chuck Todd on Meet the Press ask a question like he did recently and say, well, it's just, you know, not clear that young people are on your side on this to a pro-choice person, right? So what do you say to an increasingly secular group of millennials even, or, um, or uh, you say this is a white issue, a privileged of white issue. It's, it's actually not. The poor people of color are dramatically more skeptical of abortion than rich white people. So um, it just the, when when these kinds of things are opened up and it's not just oh abortion same sex marriage that's sort of like the pelvic crowd who cares about sex or something no it's like an issue of justice it's an issue of social justice as a matter of fact mm-hmm. um, and and something that can sort of flip the script in if you will um, to have a different kind of conversation okay very good. Well, in the book's closing paragraph, you tell readers that abortion need not be a civil war. Why is that good news for Christian thinkers? Well, um, I guess the first reason would be uh, Christians are called to nonviolence in every aspect of our lives, right? We're, we're even called to love our enemies. So um, we need to participate, I propose, in, in the abortion debate like we do, in, like we at least should do in everything in our lives, and that's in a spirit of love, right? Um, a spirit of engagement, <clears throat> not not uh, in a war, not in an attempt to think about our enemies as, as those that need to be killed in a certain kind of way, even if that's just a euphemism, right? Like, but that's the kind of rhetoric that get, gets used all the time, right? Um, it's the rhetoric of war, and I think Christians ought to resist that. Um, however, it's, it's a civil war in a way that it's sort of us versus them, right? Like, um, pit those who are on the side of women against those who are against the side of babies or something. Um, if we resist that kind of rhetoric again, we get to capture, recapture what Christians should be for, Matthew 25 Christians should be for, and that's to not choose between vulnerable populations, right? If I was hungry, you gave me food, thirsty, you gave me drink, uh, naked, you clothed me, in prison, you visited me. Jesus isn't asking us to choose between those vulnerable populations. We're supposed to be at the service and protection of them all. And, um, so to the extent that we can see this as something other than uh, those who are in favor of women versus those who are in favor of babies, it allows us, I think, to be 
more authentic participators in the public sphere and say, no, no, as a Christian, I'm committed to protecting both women and their prenatal children and don't make me, I won't participate in this civil war, us versus them uh, binary that's just way, way too uh, simplistic. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, very good. Uh, well, well, Charlie, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about the book do you want to say more about and what do you want our listeners thinking about as we wrap up today? Take as long as you like. Well, um, I guess uh, I just highlight some things that were already talked about. I think especially if your listeners find themselves as pro-lifers who are making their case in public, I would just urge them from the bottom of my heart and everything that I would stand for is to, to, to not think of women as separate from this or like not have them and invisible in the conversation. Put women up front and center. And if you do that, um, you not only uh, um, uh, are just doing what you should be doing, period, you actually make yourself much more able to be heard when it comes to what you want to say about uh, prenatal children. However, I think if you do that genuinely, you have to struggle with um, the exceptional cases of sexual violence and when a mother's life is in danger. And those are really complicated questions and they get from both sides, right? They get dismissed as uncomplicated. And I think if we're gonna genuinely put uh, struggle with trying to think about women and babies together, there are those genuinely tough cases that it's just not clear. And some people have already criticized me for my attempts to deal with them. I knew that was coming. Um, But I think we ought to struggle with those. We ought not to be afraid of dealing with the messiness and difficulty of those um, exceptions. But this will be what I finish with. I think even having said that, we ought to we ought to have a very aggressive, if loving, focus on the cases where those where they aren't so simple, right? Where we got 90% of babies with diagnosed with Down syndrome being killed via abortion because they're inconvenient. Um, so at, so so to try to hold those two things together, a sense of justice um, and even prophetic justice when it comes to the marginalized and vulnerable with with those kinds of cases, while at the same time understanding that in these um, marginal cases, the the exceptional cases, there is a kind of really serious, almost unbelievable complexity that we ought to respect as well. All right. Charlie, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Well, this was the most detailed and interesting uh, uh, interview I've had so far. Thank you. Oh, well, well, thank you for the compliment. And listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. Uh, to a complicated conversation. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our, pre- our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editors are Britt Stack and Michael Farmer. And this is Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.